Good morning. I invite you guys to turn with me to First Kings. We're going to be in First and Second Kings this morning. Again, continuing on our series uh, as we are doing this kind of overview of the, the the Old Testament historical books, looking at the the history of Israel, the story of Israel, what God is doing uh, through this story in the Old Testament. Kind of this very thirty thousand foot view uh, of uh, of these history books. We'll be in First and Second Kings this morning. Last week we covered First and Second Samuel. That was fifty years of Israel's history. This week. Uh, we're going to cover 400 years of Israel's history. Uh, and so, again, very 30,000-foot view. What is the story that God is telling here in First and Second Kings? And if you miss any major historical moments, that's all right. Almost the same story in First and Second Chronicles. So, so next week, uh, we'll, we'll get a very similar kind of historical notes, but, but those books tell a different story. Uh, this morning, in First and Second Kings, uh, we'll be looking at what is the story in First and Second Kings? What is the... What is, what is God saying in these books? What, why were they written? Why are they included in Scripture? And so we'll get to look at that this morning in First and Second Kings. Uh, I invite you, like I said, to turn me to First Kings. Chapter 8 is where we're going to really get into the text first, uh, but, uh, but it'll be a little bit till we get there. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that it challenges us, that it confronts the, the areas in our life where we're not uh, glorifying to you, where we aren't doing what you have called us to do, God. It challenges us as a church. It challenges us as individuals, God. It, it, it also encourages us as a church. It encourages us as individuals, God. I thank you that the story that we see in Scripture, this, this wonderful story of redemption, is one that is, is challenging, is, can be hurtful and painful at times, but it is also uh, uplifting and encouraging as we see your love and your grace and your kindness. God, I pray this morning that as we spend time in the word that you would challenge us, that you would uh, cause us to think correctly of you, that you would cause our lives to become conformed to the image of Jesus. God, that you would grow us and shape us and mold us to look more like Jesus because of our time in the word this morning. Father, we love you and we praise you. And it's the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning, the idea that we get from First and Second Kings, is a little bit difficult to uh, to talk about and to explain. It is uh, it's not something that we like to hear. It's not something we're going to embroider on a pillow and give to uh, to people at, as presents, right? It is a it can be a little intense the the concept in First and Second Kings, but if it, but it's an idea that if we can grasp it as individuals, and if we can apply it as a church, then it's going to radically change our lives. It's going to radically change us as individuals. It's going to radically change us as a body of believers. And we'll, and we'll kind of see the idea unfold throughout the books of First and Second Kings. I'm not going to give it to you now, uh, but just get letting, letting you know. Like it is, that is something that if we can grasp this as a church, if we can grasp this as individuals, it will radically change and shape and, and mold us, and it will be uh, hugely impactful for us as individuals and as a church. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, uh, I a group of friends and I went to a concert in Bryan, Texas. It's a town just north of College Station. And so we, we were brand new, uh, first semester, freshman year of college. We, it, was, it, was a, it was a nighttime concert, so we enjoyed the concert, had a great time. And then, and then when we left, I was the driver. When we left, it was, it was late at night, couldn't see anything. And all we had to do was to get on Highway 6. This is the highway that, that kind of connects Bryan and College Station together. All we had to do was get on Highway 6, go south to College Station. We're like 10 minutes away from the campus. It's not very far. Uh, and so we get on Highway 6, and we're driving, and it's taking a lot longer than we think it probably should. 
uh, we are, you know, at some point we're like, we should probably be there by now. But you know what? We're freshmen. We're brand new here. We don't know what we're doing, so we're just going to keep going. And uh, it, then we hit Hearn, Texas, which is the next town north, like 15 minutes north of Bryan. And uh, we pull over into McDonald's parking lot, and we think, uh, how did we get here? You know, why are we in Hearn, Texas? Why are we in College Station? Uh, so we talked about, we realized the reason we got uh, to Hearn is because I uh, am usually pretty good at directions, and I felt like, you know, I don't need a map. I got this. And so I, I, I knew how we got to the concert, and so I figured I would just backtrack and go the opposite direction. And so when I got to the freeway and I had to turn either left or right, I thought I needed to turn left. And so I did. Uh, turns out, needed to turn right. So my friends, they, they not only did my friends give me a hard time for turning the wrong direction, they also pointed out, they're like, look, even if you were unsure about whether to turn left or right, the signs say north and south, you know, and all you have to do is pick the one that said south, right, and go that way. Or any of the 10 signs that we passed on the way to Hearn that said north, you could have just realized, like, we're going the wrong direction. But no, we, we were 15 minutes in the wrong way. Uh, but that was that was what we did. We, 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 we got to Hearn, and we wanted to just, like, how, how did we get here? That was the first thought on everybody's mind as we see, like, welcome to Hearn. Uh, how did we get here? And that's what the writer of the book, uh, books of First and Second uh, Kings is answering. Just like my friend in the passenger seat who quite aggressively asked how we got here, um, that's kind of <laughs> that is kind of what the uh, what the writer of First and Second Kings is is answering here in, in, in this book. So the book of First and Second Kings uh, or the books they were written by prophets as the stories happened. So it's just kind of a history that was compiled together. But it was they all the stories were compiled together into this book, First and Second Kings. Uh, and it all, they were all put together after this major event in the life of Israel in 586 B.C. when Babylon conquered Israel and exiled all the people. And, and the writers of First and Second Kings, they get the history together, all these different documents, and what they're trying to answer is, how did we get here? I mean, we're the people of God. We have all the promises of God. I mean, think about First and Second Samuel, how wonderful the promises were that there was always going to be a king that sits on the throne of David, that the, uh, a king from the line of David would sit on the throne over God's people forever. The promises of God, that they were God's people and he was their God. And they're looking at all these promises. They're looking at who they're supposed to be. They're looking at the land that they have this whole history of and, and that this promised land that God gave them. And now they've been exiled from it. They've been captured and taken away from it. And they're sitting there in captivity in Babylon wondering, how did we get here? What, what wrong turn did we take? What did we do incorrectly? How, I, I thought we were the people of God that we had all these promises. How did we get here? That's what the, the, the book of First and Second Kings, that's what it answers. How did the Israelites get there? And as we see their answer, as we see the answer unfold in the books of First and Second Kings, we see uh, something really important about who God is. And it's something that doesn't just matter for the Israelites. It matters for us as well. The book of First Kings starts with the reign of Solomon. So, so if you remember at the end of Second Samuel, King David is, is king over Israel. He is this, this great king, right? He's kind of the, the great example for what the kings are supposed to be. He's not perfect, uh, but he is this great example of what the kings were supposed to be. And so remember, David is the one that God gave a promise to and said, I will give, your descendants will, will remain on the throne 
and a, a, a king from your line is going to remain on the throne forever. So this is a promise that, that he's made to David. Well, now David is getting old. And now they're wondering who's going to be after him. Right? That's an important question. If you're looking at the Davidic line, as you're looking at the king that God has promised, who's supposed to be king next? And there's a bit of a, uh, 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 a conundrum because the oldest son of David thinks that it should be him. And Solomon, who's not the oldest son of David, was promised by David that he would be king. And so they go back and forth a little bit while David is still alive, trying to decide who's going to be king. And the oldest son tries to take the throne. Solomon steps up, and because Solomon has David's backing, they quickly put it down, and Solomon becomes king in David's final years. So Solomon becomes king in Israel, and Solomon's reign is kind of this high watermark for the people of Israel. Like, this is the peak of Israel. This is 1000 BC. This is the peak of the nation of Israel. Solomon is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and he is ruling over all of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is leading all of them. He is ruling over all of them. Uh, and, and so he is sitting there in Jerusalem as this king, and it, it, his reign is this high watermark. So some of you may be familiar with the story of Solomon, that when he was young, when he was a king, God came to him, and God came to him and said, uh, if, I were to, if I were to give you anything you asked for, what would you ask for? And Solomon said, I, w- I want wisdom. And God says, well, that's a good answer. Okay, I'll give you wisdom. And on top of wisdom, I'll give you riches, I'll give you, uh, like, I'll give you wealth, I'll give you all these other things. But because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom. And so God gives Solomon wisdom, and he's this incredibly wise king. We see early on in his reign that he makes several decisions that are incredibly wise and leads to the flourishing of the people of Israel. And so, so the nation of Israel under Solomon is at this high watermark. What Solomon does in his reign is he expands the borders to their full extent, he establishes international trade across the world. Uh, and so money and goods and spices and resources are flowing into Israel. This is a, a huge high watermark for the people of Israel. And to top it all off, what Solomon decides to do is he decides to build a temple in the city of Jerusalem to the Lord. This is actually something that David wanted to do. David told God, he said, I want to build you a temple in the city of Jerusalem, where your name is going to dwell, so that everyone knows that God dwells in Israel. I'm going to build you a temple. And God says, you can't build me a temple. You've you've shed too much blood. But your son can. So Solomon decides he's going to build that temple. And he does. He he spares no expense and builds this beautifully ornate temple that was exactly according to God's specifications, exactly according to God's standards. He builds this beautiful temple for God in Jerusalem. And it's meant to be this place where the name of God dwells. It's meant to be this place, again, that's a reminder to not only Israel, but the world, that God dwells here. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon dedicates the temple. 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12. Excuse me, verse 17, that's where we'll start. Solomon is talking to the people of Israel. He's dedicating the temple. This is what he says in verse 17. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made for I sit on the throne of Israel 
or excuse me, I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne in Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them up out of the land of Israel. So I want you to notice the repetition in verse 17 when he says, uh, the build a house for the name of the Lord. And notice again in verse 20, the Lord promised, I have built a house for the name of the Lord. The reason the house is built is for the name of the Lord, that Israel and the world would know God. We see this, Solomon then prays a prayer of dedication for the temple. Verse 27, just kind of highlight a couple things in this prayer. Verse 27, Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? You know, he's asking, like, I've built this temple. Is, Is this where God's going to live? Is this his new house? He says, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of of which you have said, my name shall be there. There it is again, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this building. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. So Solomon is praying and he says, God, I know that you don't don't live in this house. Like this house does not contain you. The highest heaven cannot contain you, but God, please keep your eyes on this. And as we pray to the house, as we pray in your name, God, respond to our prayers. Hear our prayers. Lead us and forgive us for the sake of your name. Verse 54, Solomon concludes with this uh, benediction, this final saying. Verse 56, he stands up and he says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord, our God, be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as the day, as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Again, Solomon says it is my purpose and my goal for building this is that our goal as a nation would be that the world would know who God is, that the world would know the name of God, that it would be clear and obvious and evident to everybody across the globe that there is that the Lord is God and there is no other. Because God dwells in Israel and when they pray to him, he answers. So what we see is this high watermark in the nation of Israel, this high watermark among God's people, because Solomon is doing what the king is supposed to do and the rest of Israel is following him, that they are living for the name of God. They acknowledge who God is, they acknowledge what he's doing, and Solomon has built a temple for God's name, and there's this high watermark for the nation of Israel, that as they are living for his name, as they are pursuing his glory, glory and as they are seeking uh, his glory among the nations, as they are proclaiming his name among the nations, they're flourishing as a people. God is hearing their prayers. God is answering them. As they're obedient to the Lord, God is giving them wealth. God is giving them prosperity. God is, uh, God is flourishing them as a nation. They are 
are living for God's name. This beautiful high water mark for the people of Israel. The problem is that it doesn't last very long. In fact, it begins to go downhill during Solomon's reign. One of the things that uh, God tells the kings not to do in his law, tells us to everybody, but especially the kings, one of the things that God tells the kings not to do is to not marry foreign wives. They're not supposed to go marry foreign women, and the reason that they're not supposed to marry foreign women is because foreign women have foreign gods. They worship idols. They don't worship Yahweh. They don't worship the God whose name Israel is supposed to represent and worship. And so if, they, if the king marries a foreign wife, she's going to bring her idols in, and she may turn the king's heart away from the Lord. And so that's the reason that God tells the kings they're not supposed to marry foreign wives. Well, Solomon loves, like, really loves women. 700 wives and 300 concubines is what he ends up having. And many of those 700 wives are foreign wives. He immediately, uh, early on in his reign, marries uh, a, 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 woman from Pharaoh, uh, a woman from Egypt in this military alliance with Pharaoh. And so Solomon, I mean, he begins... Uh, like, he begins accumulating foreign wives like it's a collection set. Like, he, like he's like, I got to get one from every people group. Like, I got I to gotta, I gotta get them all, you know? Like, he's, he begins just accumulating foreign wife after foreign wife after foreign wife. He ends up with hundreds of foreign wives. And predictably, like the Bible says, they all bring their idols into his palace. And they begin worshiping their gods in his presence. And they turn Solomon's heart away from the Lord. So Solomon later on in his life, he represented this high water mark for Israel, but later on in his life, he begins to turn away from the Lord because of these foreign wives. And this is what God tells him. He says, because you've turned away from me, because you have rebelled against me, because you've worshipped all of these idols, I'm going to split the kingdom from you. You're not doing what, I'm, what, what I've called you to do as the king of, of Judah. You're not doing what I've called you to do as the king of Israel. You're not leading Israel for my name. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the other ten tribes away from you. You're going to stay on the throne in Judah. Your sons are going to stay on the throne in Judah because I promised David. But if you're not going to make my name famous, if you're not going to lift up my name among the world, then maybe the northern kingdoms will. And maybe a different king will up north. Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam becomes king in Israel. And again, he sits on the throne of all Israel, this united kingdom. And uh, the, one of the things that Solomon did when he was king is he, he built all these public works projects. So he, and he used labor from the people of Israel to do it. And so he, he enforced labor policies on all the people of Israel. They had, to, they had to take turns and build all of these buildings. These heavy labor is a bit of a burden on the people of Israel. And so, uh, and so they... So this is one of the things that Solomon did. And so when Solomon died and Rehoboam becomes king, uh, the Israelites come to him, the people from all these other tribes, and they say, hey, can we take a break from working on these public works projects? We're tired. It's a, little, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. We're, we, we're done with it. Can we please take a break? And Rehoboam, has, he answers with one of the funniest lines in the Bible to me. Rehoboam looks at the people of Israel and he says, I don't know why he thought this was a good idea. But he looks at the people of Israel and he says, my pinky finger is thicker than my father's loins. Like, you think he was tough? I'm going to be tougher. You think he gave you a lot of work? 
You think his yoke was heavy? Just wait till the amount of work that I'm going to give you. He disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. It's not like the most endearing speech ever. So the, the people of Israel who were standing there, they hear this speech from Rehoboam, this reply, and they say, now we're good. Thanks. Like, and they, they leave. Like the ten tribes of Israel, other than Judah, they just turn around and they pick a guy named Jeroboam to become king, and they leave. So I, I, can we put that map back up here for a second? So you can see what happened to the nation of Israel. The southern tribe was Judah. Uh, all of the other tribes of Israel just left. They're like, you know what? You're on your own. We're not, we're not going to do that. Uh, and so they left. And so they, they make Jeroboam king, and they, they split the kingdom. So this is what happened. Israel split because Solomon turned from God. Because Solomon and his son didn't live for the name of God, because they didn't do what they were supposed to do, because they weren't acting and living for the, to make the name of God known among the Israelites and among the world. They split the kingdom. Because, again, if they were going to do it in the south, maybe they need a second king in the north who will do it. The problem is, didn't happen in the north. Kings in the northern kingdom didn't live for the name of God either. They didn't do any better. In fact, they immediately did worse. Jeroboam becomes king in the northern kingdom. And what he's really worried that the, the nation of Israel is going to try to reunite with the southern kingdom. So now you have the nation of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. You have the nation of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam is worried that they're going to try to reunite under the king in Judah. Because that, that's what they have been under. They, they had a, almost a century of good rule under David and Solomon. And he's worried that they're going to reunite. And so one of the reasons he's worried is because the temple is in Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. And so he's worried that all of the people of the northern kingdom are going to travel down to Jerusalem to worship like they're supposed to. And then when they're in Jerusalem, they're going to think, hey, we should just reunite. We should get rid of Jeroboam and come back together again. So he's worried that that's going to happen. So what Jeroboam decides, and it's really clever, but it's really wrong. What Jeroboam decides to do is he builds two golden calves. And he puts one in the northern part of northern Israel and one in the southern part of northern Israel. And he tells his people, the ten tribes, he says, don't go to Jerusalem to worship. Worship one of these calves. These calves are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. These calves are Yahweh. So worship them. And immediately, Jeroboam leads the nation of Israel into idolatry. So not only does Jeroboam not live for the name of God, like he misappropriates the name of God, and he attaches it to these golden idols and says, these idols are Yahweh. These idols are your God. And he immediately leads the Israelites into idolatry, the northern kingdom into idolatry. And it doesn't get better. The rest of the history of the northern kingdom, they are stuck worshiping these golden calves. They can't seem to break out of it. They can't seem to shake their idolatry. And it just gets worse throughout the history of the northern kingdom. There's another king who comes uh, later on named Ahab. And Ahab was one of the wickedest kings in the nation of Israel's history. He was also one of the longest reigning kings in Israel's history. And Ahab had a wife named Jezebel, and the two of them together were horrendous rulers of the nation of Israel. 
Because while they were king, Jezebel worshipped Baal. She worshipped kind of this neighboring god. She, she killed and murdered the prophets of God. They, they led the Israelites in worship of idolatry. They led the Israelites in worship of other gods. They led the Israelite in worship of these other things, and they refused to turn to the Lord. They refused to follow God. They refused to submit to him as king and Lord. And so they, they refused to live for the name of God and only worshiped idols and other deities. Like the Israelites were not doing very well. The northern kingdom refused to live for God's name. They were horrible examples of what it looks like to be the people of God. The end of 1 Kings and going into the beginning of 2 Kings, we meet these two guys named Elijah and Elisha. These are two prophets that God sends to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And they minister the northern kingdom in the name of God. They, Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he shows that the name of God is mightier and more powerful, that the name of Baal is nothing. They, they perform all these miracles and wonders and signs in the northern kingdom, and what they're trying to do is to get the Israelites to turn back to the name of God. They're trying to get the Israelites to turn back to the Lord to stop worshiping these idols, to stop worshiping these other gods, and to turn back to God. And despite all of the miracles, despite all of the wonderful things that Elijah and Elisha did in this northern kingdom, they never did. Northern kingdom never turned back to God. They never abandoned their idolatry. They never stopped worshiping the golden calves. They didn't stop worshiping Baal. They didn't worship, stop worshiping all these other things. 2 Kings 17. I want to flip there real quick. 2 Kings chapter 17. Finally, God had enough. In 722 BC, so this is about uh, 250 years after the reign of Solomon. In 722 BC, after 250 consecutive years of idol worship, 250 consecutive years of worshiping Baal and other gods, 250 years of refusing to worship the name of God and, and being a horrible example to the world about what it looks like to be God's people. After 250 years of it, God had had enough. At this point, Hosea was king in Israel, and this is what it says, 2 Kings 17, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king, uh, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of, uh, of the northern kingdom. Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. So I want to show you guys the Assyrian Empire. This is kind of the, the big bully on the block. This is the neighboring superpower at this time in 722 B.C. And they, for a while, had been kind of antagonizing the Israelites. They'd had a lot of problems with Israel. They'd raided each other regularly. Uh, and finally, the Assyrian Empire, who had amassed all this land and had this fierce, ruthless army, they came down in 722 B.C., and they wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. They captured the capital city. They killed the king. They took away all of the people. And they took the people and settled them all throughout the land of Assyria. All the people they didn't kill which they were, they were ruthless. When they would conquer a town or an area, they would slaughter countless people. So all the people they didn't kill, they took them away. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was no more. And only the tribe of Judah remained. 
again, the, the writer of First and Second Kings, the compiler, is asking this question, how did we get here? This, this is the people of God. This is the people with the promises. Uh, this is the people that God rescued out of Egypt, the people that God brought into the land of Canaan. Like, this is the people of God. How is it that they, that, how did they get here? Answers it in verse 7. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and the ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made an offering on all the high places as the, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. They did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warning that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord is very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So in 722 BC, the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom. And the reason they wiped out the northern kingdom is because the Israelites were idolatrous. God gave the northern kingdom over because of their idolatry. Because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They were meant to be this shining beacon of hope and light to the world for the name of God. They were meant to live in a way that made the name of God known among the nations. They were meant to show the nations what it looked like to follow God, and they refused to do that. And because of their disobedience and rebellion, they got wiped out. The southern kingdom had some good kings, but also had a lot of really bad kings, and they followed the same pattern as the northern kingdom. It happened, though, that in 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom was wiped out, uh, the southern kingdom had a king named Hezekiah on the throne. And Hezekiah uh, was known in 2 in Kings. He's known as a king who's, there, there wasn't anyone like him. There was no king before or after him that was like him. He was the guy that followed God. He was the guy that did what he was supposed to do, that that followed the name of the Lord. And, and what would happen in those days is if your nation lost in war and you were conquered, what people assumed is that the gods of the nation that won were stronger than the gods of the nation that lost. And so if you're the northern kingdom and you lose your battle to the Assyrians, you're wondering, do we lose because the gods of Assyria are more powerful than Yahweh? Like, it, it was Yahweh weaker, and that's why we lost. 
But Hezekiah makes it very clear, and God makes it very clear through Hezekiah that that's not why the northern kingdom was wiped out. Because it's the Assyrians, they come down. They don't stop at the northern kingdom. They come down to Judah. They come down to Jerusalem. They take over most of the land of Judah and besiege Jerusalem. And, and they, the, the leader of the army goes to Hezekiah, the leader of the Assyrian army goes to Hezekiah, and he says, hey, your gods are not going to protect you. They didn't protect the, the northern kingdom. They're not going to protect you. No other gods can stand before the Assyrian army's gods. And Hezekiah prays to the Lord. He says, God, you are God, and there is no other. And I don't have a way out of this. Assyria is mightier. They are more powerful. But God revealed to them that you are God and there is no other. Following morning, 165,000 Assyrian soldiers were dead on the battlefield as they, uh, as they died from disease the night before. And the Assyrian army left. They went back up north. And God rescued the nation of Judah. It was very clear in that moment that the northern kingdom didn't lose because Yahweh was weaker. They lost because Yahweh punished them. Because God decided if the northern kingdom wouldn't make his name known by their behavior, then he would make his name known by their punishment. And eventually that happens to the, sec- the southern kingdom as well. Hezekiah is a good king, but his son Manasseh is another wicked king. He's another king just like the other kings of Israel. He's idolatrous. He turns Israel's heart away from God. And God tells Manasseh, he says, it's not going to be in your lifetime or in your son's lifetime, but eventually I'm going to kick Israel, out, the southern kingdom out of the land, again, because of your idolatry, because of your brokenness and your sinfulness. 586 B.C., 150 years after the fall of the northern kingdom, Babylon appears on the scene, this mighty superpower. And in 586 B.C., God gives the southern kingdom into the hand of Babylon. You can see uh, on the map of Babylon that they basically just conquered the old Assyrian Empire. And they came down and they, they besieged Jerusalem and God gave Jerusalem into their hand. They, con- they conquered Jerusalem. Uh, the end of 2 Kings, chapter 24, excuse me, chapter 25, verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house, he burned it down and all the army of the Chaldeans, meaning the Babylonians who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and, <coughs> excuse me, and the rest of the people, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. So just like the northern kingdom, when Babylon came in, God gave the southern kingdom into exile. And for the exact same reason that he gave the northern kingdom into exile, because they were idolatrous, because they didn't live for his name, because they were horrible examples to the world about what it means to obey God. And they told a lie to the world about who God is and what he's like. And again, just like the northern kingdom, God decided that if the southern kingdom wasn't going to make his name known by their behavior, then he would make his name known by their punishment. And he took them out. What we're going to see this, what we see this morning is this idea about who God is and what he's like. What we see in First and Second Kings is the idea that God will make himself known either through you or at your expense. What God is most concerned about is his name. 
and he's going to make it known, and it's either going to be through you or at your expense. I think we're confused about what God wants. So many times we, we, we think about God as if, as if all that God wants is for us to be happy, what God wants is for us to, to feel pleased, and what God wants is for us to be excited, what God wants is for us to live a good life. Like, like what God wants is, is, is mainly what God is focused on is us. He, he is, all of his attention, all of his focus is on us, and God wants us to be happy and live a good life. That is not God's focus. What we see in First and Second Kings is what God wants and cares about more than anything else in the world. Not us, not, not the church, not anything else in the world. What God cares most about is his name. And he wants the world to know his name. He wants the world to know his character and his qualities. He wants the world to know that he is God and there is no other. And you may be wondering, that seems a little selfish of God, right? That, that all that he cares about is himself. All that he cares about is his name. And the reason that we think that is because if all you cared about is yourself, then that would be selfish. <laughs> that would be wrong. The reason we can't just care about ourselves is because we're created beings. We are not worthy objects of worship. So if I spend all my time thinking about myself and worshiping myself and focusing on myself, I'm a just a created being with my limitations and my faults and my flaws. I am not a worthy object of worship. And so I'm worshiping the wrong thing if I'm focusing on myself. But God, he is the only worthy object of worship. He is the creator. Everything else is a creature. You don't want a God that is only focused on you. You don't want a God that lifts you up as the highest good. You want a God that recognizes that he is the only thing worth worshiping, that he is the only thing worth knowing, and it is in his character, it is in his nature, it is by his qualities that we receive life and joy and love and peace and pleasure. Like all of those things flow from him, but they come from a recognition that he is God and there is no other. So what God is concerned about in the world is not us. He's not concerned about the church. What he is most concerned about in the world is his name, that he is God. And there is no other. And the world needs to know that. We don't get to approach God on our own terms. When we have the wrong idea about what God is like, and what he wants from us, then we can approach God and make a God in our image. And we can make a God, we can say things like, well, my God wouldn't send, a wouldn't send people to hell. Maybe not, but the God would. And it's not our job to create a God in our image, to create a God that we're happy with, to create a God that is so focused on us that he's lost focus on himself. There is God and there are creatures. And we don't get to decide what God is like. We don't get to decide what the name of Lord, the Lord is like. We don't get to decide what his qualities and his characteristics are. We don't get to create those. We have to approach God on his terms because he is God and we are just creatures. He is God and, and, and there is no other. And he will make his name known either through you or at your expense. This is what the final judgment is when Christ comes back. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will proclaim the name of God because for so many people, for the first time in their existence, they will recognize for the very first time that he is God and there is no other. And he will be sent forever, separated from God in hell. Because what God is doing in that moment, and he is making his name known at their expense. 
He is proclaiming that he is a God that is not okay with rebellion, that he is a God that is not okay with sin and brokenness, that he is a God that is not okay with, 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 with sinning against him. He's, not a, he's a God that is not okay with worshiping anything other than him. And so he is making himself known, his name known at their expense. And you and I are all deserving of that. Because we are all people who have sinned against God, who have fashioned gods in our image and gone off and worshipped them. But the good news is that, that there is grace in Jesus. There's, there's life. In God. Like the God that we serve, the God as he has revealed himself, he isn't just a God who, who is mad at people. He isn't just a God who, who is a, a rule guy who wants us to follow all of these rules. He's also a God who is a abundant. Uh, I, can't, I can't say it. He's abounding in love and grace and mercy. Those are all part of the characteristics of God. Those are part of his name. Which is why the clearest way that we can see what God is like is in Jesus. In Jesus, we have a physical representation of God, the fullness of God, a, a live picture, an image of what God is like, God in human flesh. We can see his name and we can see it clearly in Jesus. And Jesus has said, it is by my death and resurrection that there is eternal life. Where, where we can see God's character and his name most clearly is in the beautiful good news of the gospel. So what God is calling you to do this morning is to approach him on his terms. And if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you've never turned to him for life, then what God, you don't get to decide whether you're saved or not. You don't get to decide whether God is pleased with you or not. If you've never trusted in Jesus, the Bible is saying that you are not pleasing to God because of your sin and your rebellion. And God is calling you to turn to him, to place your faith and hope and trust in Jesus for the very first time, approaching him on his terms. If you're here this morning, and you've placed your faith in Jesus. And we, th- this, is, this is something that is true for us as individuals and as a church, even as after we've placed our faith in Jesus. God is concerned about his name more than anything else. He's concerned that the world knows the gospel more than anything else. Which means we as individuals and we as a church, we have to be about the gospel. We have to be a church that proclaims and shares the gospel in our community and around the world. Because that's what God cares about. We cannot undermine and undercut the gospel by our behaviors and our actions. We cannot undermine or undercut the gospel by our refusal to go out. We have to be a church that is about the gospel. Because that's what God is about. He is about making his name known. In 1 Corinthians, there's this strange passage where Paul is talking about the, the, the Lord's Supper. And Paul says that the Corinthian church is improperly following the lord's supper they're not doing it correctly what they're doing is they are they are letting the rich people eat more than they should and their poor people don't get any food and so they're eating the lord's supper incorrectly and paul says because you're eating the lord's supper incorrectly some of you have gotten sick and some of you have even died and what we're seeing is that by their inadequate use of the lord's supper by by using the lord's supper in a way that shows there's division in the church between the rich and the poor, that what they are doing is they are undermining the gospel. The Lord's Supper is meant to be this beautiful picture where the whole church comes together and says we are all equal by the blood and uh, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And by saying that the rich get Jesus and more and more Jesus and the poor don't get any, they are undermining the gospel. They are proclaiming a lie to the church and the world about who Jesus is. 
and what he's like. They're undermining the gospel. And so what God is doing is he's taking them off the board. No less saved, they're no less Christians. But if they're going to undermine the gospel by their behavior as a church, if they're going to undermine the gospel as their behavior as individuals, it says that they get sick and some have even died. God is taking them out. If he, uh, in Romans, oh, excuse me, not Romans, Revelation, Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he says that, that the church of Ephesus has left their first love. What we see in Ephesus is this, this church that is doctrinally pure. They are, they are doctrinally sound. They know their Bible but they have lost their love and appreciation for the gospel. They've lost their love for Jesus. And what Jesus tells them is that, that, you know, turn it around, find your first love, come to know Christ and be excited about him again, or I will remove your lampstand from its place. The idea is that the ministry you're doing, I'll give it to somebody else if you're not going to make the name of Christ known. Like we as individuals and as a church have to know that it, it doesn't affect our salvation. It doesn't affect whether we are following God, but God will not allow us to grow and thrive as a church if we are not about what he's about. If we're going to undermine the gospel by our behavior or we're going to refuse to make Christ known in our church and in our community by, by proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus, we will not be here anymore. God is about his name. God is about the gospel. And that's what we have to be about. And it should be easy to be about the gospel because the gospel is about life and joy and peace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus. It is about the overwhelming and overflowing love and grace of God. And so if you're here this morning and you are not excited about the gospel, I want to encourage you to do one of two things. Either understand and experience the gospel for the very first time. And maybe you're not excited about the gospel because you've never really understood and known just how loved and forgiven you are by Jesus. And so what I would encourage you to do is to, to, to place your faith in Jesus and experience and understand the gospel for the very first time. That'll get you excited. And if, you're, if you know that you follow Jesus and you're not excited about the gospel, what I encourage you to do is to rehearse and remind yourself the glorious good news that there's salvation in Jesus, that God is working through Christ for life, to give us forgiveness and grace. And rehearse that and remind yourself of that and remember that that is greater than anything else in the world. And that should get you excited about the gospel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are concerned about your name and that you are a God worth worshiping. That you are a God worth praising and celebrating. God, that you are God worth enjoying. God, I pray that, that we as believers, that we as, as your church, God, that we would be people who would lift up your name in the world. God, I pray first and foremost that every single person in here would know your name, that every single person in here would know who you are and have their place their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. God, I pray that we collectively as individuals and as a church, God, would be excited about the gospel and would make your name known by the way that we behave, by the way that we share with one another and encourage one another, that this gospel-centered community would make your name known here in our church. God, and that we would take the gospel out of those doors, God, and go proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus and make your name known here in the community and around the world. God, I thank you for Kenzie and Columbia for the team that is going on a mission trip 
to Nebraska this morning. God, I thank you that they're going out to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus. God, I pray that you would mobilize all of us on a regular basis into our community to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus. That we would be about what you're about. That we would live for your name. That we would live for eternity today. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.